You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Robotic surgery, the future is here. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, your host, and with me today is Dr. Patrick Lowe, an assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Lowe is the director of the Gynecologic Oncology Robotics and Minimally Invasive Surgery Program. Welcome, Dr. Lowe. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. It's certainly my pleasure to be joining you guys today. Now, you know, the majority of the 600,000 hysterectomies performed each year are done through an abdominal incision. And right now, only about 10 to 15% are performed laparoscopically. But we both know that even skilled laparoscopic surgeons can't always get the visualization they need to do highly technical work laparoscopically and must resort to laparotomy. And this is particularly true if someone has cancer, a lot of scar tissue, or a very large uterus, which is, of course, where robotics comes in. So can you start by describing exactly what robotic-assisted surgery is? Robotic-assisted surgery is, in my opinion, sort of the next generation of technology in minimally invasive surgery. And so what the system actually has, it's actually a surgical system, okay, and it has three components associated with it, whereas standard laparoscopy has pretty much a laparoscope, some surgical instruments. This actually has a dedicated vision system, a dedicated surgeon's console, as well as a dedicated patient side cart. And so the three components actually work in conjunction with each other to perform uh, more difficult and more complex minimally invasive surgical procedures, such as procedures for gynecologic malignancies, such as cervical cancer, endometrial cancer, Mm -hmm. and certainly complex benign gynecologic procedures. You know, my understanding is that this was originally developed by the military as a way of operating on wounded soldiers that couldn't get to the surgeon, so the surgeon via the robot would operate very remotely sometimes. How often is robotics performed remotely today? Well, the FDA approval, at least in the United States, with regards to robotic surgery, the surgeon has to be in the room with the robotic equipment. So we're not doing remote stuff in the United States. We are States. not doing remote stuff, but there is actually companies that are developing software. Say, for instance, if you had an expert in robotic surgery in, for instance, Arizona, mm-hmm. and you had a surgeon in New Mexico who lived in a remote location in New Mexico, they're attempting to develop software that will actually allow the surgeon in Arizona to proctor on a live basis the surgeon in New Mexico. In other words, he would be able to take over the controls of the robotic system to train and proctor that surgeon from a remote location. So we will be seeing a little bit more of this. I think we will probably be seeing that in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So what kinds of benign gynecologic cases do you think benefit from using the robot? Well, it, a lot of that depends on your experience as a laparoscopic surgeon. I've seen certainly people who are very skilled at laparoscopic surgery who can do and perform simple laparoscopic cases to very difficult and complex laparoscopic surgery, including a simple hysterectomy for menorrhage or dysfunctional uterine bleeding, a uh, ovarian cystectomy for a simple cyst on an ovary, a myomectomy for dysfunctional uterine bleeding, yeah, but those or things those can types be, of things. Those, those things can be done laparoscopically. Correct. Like, what does the robot add? Correct. For the cases that you would normally do in an open procedure, okay? Mm-hmm. In other words, a uterus that's 14, 16, 18-week size, a four or 500-gram uterus that has large myomas, large fibroids, that you would normally do that case from an open procedure, that may be a good candidate for robotics patients that have extensive evidence of pelvic endometriosis, 
where you know you may have to dissect the ureters all the way out from the, the base of the pelvis to the bladder. Some of those types of more difficult laparoscopic or actually difficult surgical procedures that you wouldn't consider doing laparoscopically can be performed, in my opinion, because they're more complex, easier with robotics. And then it got its FDA approval in performing myomectomies. So those are probably the three biggest areas that robotics could potentially benefit benign gynecology. But I, I think I, I think you would agree that a lot of times uh, robotic and benign cases is used for cases that really are simpler, that, that, that don't necessarily require robotics. And obviously robotics is very expensive, and insurance companies pay the same thing to the surgeons or the hospital. So honestly, do you think the benefit to the patient in most benign cases, simple cases, justifies this expense? Do you think some people are using this for marketing purposes? Well... I, I know I that's think, a hard question. Well, this is what I would say. This is how I've, I've answered that question before. As long as 60, 65, 70% of hysterectomies, whichever database you want to look at, whether it's governmental database or you know Medicare database or SEER database, whatever, as long as that percentage is still existing of hysterectomies being done through an open procedure, then I would say there is a role for certainly laparoscopy and robotics to sort of move that 60%. Because really, in my opinion, I think really open hysterectomy should, and I'm sure you feel the same way too, should be maybe about 20% of all hysterectomies in the United States. But you and I both know that the large majority of practitioners either do not do laparoscopy, don't feel comfortable with laparoscopy, or do not perform robotic surgery. Mm -hmm. And so there's still a large percentage of women who are having an open procedure that really could benefit from laparoscopy or robotics. And so whether robotics is easier to learn than laparoscopy if you've never performed minimally invasive surgery before, I don't know if we really know the answer to that. But until 15, 20% of all hysterectomies are done in an open case, I think if new technology is available that can sort of shift that paradigm towards less invasive surgery with fewer complications, less blood loss, shorter hospitalization, quicker recovery, because a lot of women today not only have a lot of things to do at home, but they also have a professional career. And so if you're able to go home the next day from surgery Absolutely. The short recovery and time recovery in two weeks, that's a big impact on society. I couldn't agree um, more. And so there, there are some issues with cost associated with it being more expensive. And part of that is when you do these cost analysis. They're not taking into effect the cost to the patient and lost revenue right. and all of that, which is right. a big factor. Right. So can you start by talking a little bit about the timeline? When did minimally invasive techniques and specifically robotics for cancer surgery become an option? Well, specifically for gynecologic cancers, it's, I think a lot of the listeners will be surprised to learn that laparoscopy as an option for endometrial cancer and cervical cancer has been around since the early 90s. You know, the first series of publications on laparoscopy for treating endometrial cancer and cervical cancer were published between 1992 and 1995. But during the 90s, how often did that happen? These were basically expert centers that were pushing the envelope with laparoscopy and looking for a more minimally invasive approach and were basically trying to prove that this new technology and new techniques were safe and feasible. And when they did that, what then developed was we need to do a randomized trial to see if it's equivalent to open procedures. And, and it has been a historical teaching that if you have endometrial cancer, if you have cervical cancer, that you should have an open surgery. Mm-hmm. And as the 90s went on, computer technology improved, surgical technology improved as well as instrumentation. What we saw were more and more institutions, at least probably on the East Coast and the West Coast, were starting to implement laparoscopy in their program. And the way they did that was they would send a surgeon to France or Germany, and they would spend six weeks or three months with 
these surgeons in Europe who had developed these techniques, they would come back to the United States and then they would start a program at their institution, places like University of Southern California, where I did my fellowship, Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, MD Anderson in Texas. And so what happened was things migrated from Europe to the United States, okay? Because in Europe, they actually think minimally invasive surgery first and open surgery second, it's interesting. which is different than the historical approach in the United States. And so as more evidence-based data came out, that this was safe, this was feasible, there's no difference or there's no concerns about an increased risk of recurrence or an increased risk of survival in a lot of retrospective and some small prospective studies, more and more institutions started performing laparoscopy. So the, the prospective studies that you're talking about, this is laparoscopy, not This is laparoscopy. Okay. This is laparoscopy, okay. correct. But as you and I both know, laparoscopy is hard to learn for benign gynecology. It's even more difficult to learn for gynecologic oncology. And the reason is doing the lymph node dissection. It was always thought that doing the lymph node dissection was going to be the rate limiting step and being able to perform minimally invasive surgery because we'd already been performing laparoscopic hysterectomies and laparoscopic assisted vaginal hysterectomies. And so as a LAP2 trial was started within the Society of Gynecologic Oncology and the GOG, more and more institutions started performing laparoscopy. But interestingly, in 2004 and 2005, a lot of these societies do surveys and they ask the question, to the members of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology, what are your feelings about laparoscopy for not only endometrial cancer but cervical cancer? And what they found out was that fewer than 8% of all gynecologic oncologists will use laparoscopy more than 50% of the time for every patient they see with endometrial cancer. So there's about 41,000 new endometrial cancer cases per year. So if you only have 8% of all your practitioners feeling very strong or even utilizing laparoscopy, when it's been shown to be equivalent to open surgery, you've got a big problem, okay? Absolutely. And the thought was that it's because a lot of gynecologists haven't had formalized training in laparoscopy. You have to have an expert assistant, okay? There's economics involved, training and learning curve. And about the time that that survey came out was when robotics was FDA approved for gynecologic oncology. I would like to thank my guest, Dr. Patrick Lowe, who has enlightened us about the advantage of using robotic surgery for the treatment of both benign and malignant gynecologic conditions. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker. You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcasts, visit ReachMD.com. For comments or questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lauren Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. So, Rachel, mm-hmm. now that you're past menopause and we've determined you have osteoporosis, I'd like to start you on prescription-only Avista, raloxifene hydrochloride tablets. Why Avista? Well, because it's the only medicine that reduces the risk of osteoporotic fractures and invasive breast cancer in women like you. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer. Am I really at risk for invasive breast cancer? Based on my risk assessment, you may be. Some risk factors for breast cancer include advancing age, family history, and personal history. So even though no one in my family has ever had breast cancer, I'm still at risk for other reasons, including my advancing age? Exactly. 
And I think the benefits outweigh the potential risks for you. It's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. Individual results may vary, of course, but that's exciting news. Exciting? I'll have to take your word on that, doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Avista increases the risk of blood clots. should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands, or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lilly sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA.